Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, a very interesting and what is um, already an incredibly strange episode of, <laughs> of the the Horror Left Page Vanguard podcast. Uh, we we are joined, uh, or I am joined, as always, uh, by by John, the wonderful and fantastic John. Always glad to be back on the spectral domain of podcast making. <laughs> And and you you've you you know these people you love them the left page Frank and Bruno <laughs> hello hello how are you guys doing this this is a special crossover tricontinental episode yeah, one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen yeah <laughs> <laughs> this this uh, is you know I think we had to choose a kind of era defining work of art something that was a landmark statement of culture. <laughs> To bring together <laughs> po- podcasters on three continents yeah. to talk about this it's a masterpiece. incredible masterpiece of 20th century culture. It, Absolutely. It, it does take our combined force to, to confront Zed and the power of the tabernacle, so... And the giant, giant stone head, for sure. Oh yeah, you cannot yeah. forget the giant stone head of a very, like... Angry meme Karl Marx. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it looks so much like Karl Marx. <laughs> uh, I'm, I am holding to the line that both the giant stone head and the masks are Karl Marx ma- masks and a Karl Marx head. Yeah, um, that- because because that gives a very interesting like Marxist Leninist reading of yeah. the film. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and the best part is that from far away the teeth in the mask look like the mustache from Marx. So it's yeah. always a it's always a blend of seeing a monster and then seeing Marx and it's really confusing and great at the same time. <laughs> right? Like like I know we're riffing right now, but I tried to find out like um more more about Zardoz's head specifically, like the mask and and kind of like where where's the inspiration from? Because there are a bunch of like uh, kind of like Greco-Roman looking marble busts throughout the entire yeah. film, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's definitely calling back to that, but it also really really looks like Karl Marx. <laughs> yeah, and like I, I I was really hoping I could find like some some art, like an interview with like an art director or somebody that was like, yeah, you know, I had a lot of deep thoughts about like <laughs> like like MLM at the time, so I like did did the Marx head as Zardoz, but like I couldn't find. <laughs> Any anything about where they drew the imagery from the head from? Yeah, I have to admit that my research was slightly less sophisticated because <laughs> what I did, what I did was just Google: "Is John Borman a communist?" <laughs> Straight into the point. Yeah, I I didn't I you know Ash is there doing like serious research, tracking down the art director and the set designers. I'm like, is he? Is he? <laughs> I'm sort of like a reverse McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not there to expose anyone who's a socialist. Uh, I just want to. I just want to know so I can love them and not. <laughs> Sir, have you now, or when will you be a member of the Communist Party? <laughs> Soon, please. <laughs> We talked about that in our episode on Jordan Peele uh, with the Vegan Vanguard, where we, where I had to make the point, I had to break it to people that I didn't think that Jordan Peele was a Marxist-Leninist yet. Yet. <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> but yeah, from what I saw, like I think it was in a similar fed or something. Apparently, the head was uh, inspired by John Borman at the time, which is really? sort of confusing. <laughs> 
It's like, John Borman looked like Karl Marx? What? <laughs> My mind is, like, melting right now. There's just there's so many layers to this. <laughs> the uh, origins of the head. I think before we before we start and dive into this in a kind of... It subjects it to the rigorous science of dialectical criticism. The rigorous science um, of horniness, yes. Of... Uh, <laughs> Definitely. Uh, uh, Horniness and historical materialism. (laughs) Um, The the two essential features of any leftist podcast. That is how the dialectic works, yes. I think think what we need first is, um, uh, as we do on every episode of The Horror Vanguard, which I'm sure you're aware of, Ash always provides a uh, plot recap for people who have maybe not seen the film. Yeah. So, uh, on that note, Ash, uh, with the high standards that you've set on every <laughs> other uh, podcast that we have done together, good luck for those for those who have not seen John Borman's mid seventies masterpiece, Zardoz. What is this film about? This film. <laughs> <laughs> Things happen according to a plot, and they are filmed for our possible enjoyment or raw confusion. Teenage heartthrob, heartthrob Sean Connery, his glorious hair flowing behind him, rides horseback across scenic beaches, rolling hillsides, enjoying the cool morning sun. His firm, masculine body clad only in a tight red mankini and bandolera. His chest hair glistening in the sunlight. Also, there's a giant floating head that's all Karl Marx, but it's also God, but it's not God because it's the Wizard of Oz. And then Sean Connery gets the psychic powers and he becomes God, but also not God because the penis is evil. And then a mass murder happens, but it's a good mass murder and Sean Connery single-handedly repopulates humanity. <laughs> 1974's Zardoz, a softcore porn for the sci-fi crowd. <laughs> Hurrah! Yeah, that's Bravo. genius. That's genius. It's just amazing, as as always, uh, when it comes to plot recaps. I, to, to, to be honest, I think you were helped by the source material for once again. <laughs> yeah. uh, outstanding, and as ever, 100% accurate work, Ash. Yes, um, there are no mistakes you. there. Yeah. <laughs> I, st- I strive it, for technical accuracy in my plot recaps. It sure is a film. So, <laughs> so... Okay, so where do we where do we start, everybody? Yeah. Where do we start with this film? Sean Connery's hot. Let's just get this out of the way. This is this is gonna <laughs> yeah. this is this is the specter haunting the conversation around this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We mm-hmm. just need to admit it. It's get it out of the way first. Yeah, and like <laughs> yeah, for, from a more critical uh, uh, perspective, there are a lot of subtextual discursive elements in in Sean Connery running around in a red mankini kind of just adventuring and relaxing and having sex for for probably the majority of the screen time of this film he's almost naked for about 90% of the movie yeah yeah oh totally and then then like, he puts on like a little jumper at the end and that's his like getting yeah. dressed because he's the big superhero now and it has shoulder pads yeah it has some oh, yeah. massive shoulder pads <laughs> So, uh, are we trying to kind of make an argument for this being a slightly more progressive version of of nineteen seventies erotic sci fi, where instead of you know the there would be a half naked woman on screen for most of the time, it's the undeniable masculine out energy and aura of <laughs> James Bond. <laughs> 
I, I think it, I think it's hard to, and I know we're going to get into this later, especially when we get into the more um, overtly political elements of the world of Zardoz and the Voids and the Eternals. But it's it's really hard to, at least for me, to call this movie anything in particular, to, like to call it progressive, yeah. to call it reactionary, to call it pro anything, because yeah. the the text is very ambiguous. But I do say, yeah, in in terms of at least the costuming and how the camera kind of appreciates sean connery yeah <laughs> I, I definitely think that like there there is a homoerotic energy to this mm. film that is yeah. like when you when you like so so this film has three classes of people and we'll get more specifically into this in a bit but it's got it's got the brutals who are forced to farm wheat for the eternals who are like the immortal overclass the rulers and the their will is kind of enforced through the executioners and that's sean connery he's one of them and all of the executioners are just like, they're all bears and red mankinis running around beaches and on horseback for like the first half hour of the movie. It's just kind of them <laughs> gallivanting with, yeah. with just like a little bit of plot thrown in there for the people who don't like the visuals. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. long yeah. shots of the stone head flying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get some establishing shots of Zardoz in between establishing shots of like Sean Connery's chest hair. <laughs> I mean, those are really the two key features of this film. <laughs> those are the two main uh, characters, yes. It's it's that magnificent plumage that Sean Connery has, and the giant flying stone head. Yeah, uh, which is full of wheat. Uh, very yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And plastic people, or in plastic like containers, people. Yeah, people in plastic container packaging <laughs> and and also the the drawn on mustache and facial hair from arthur which is also <laughs> yes. also magnificent <laughs> this movie has an aesthetic like oh, yeah. peak aesthetic like throughout the entire movie like from the stone head to uh sean connery to the whole uh the eternal look the how the their world sort of yeah. is designed their and dining the visuals, room yeah everything mm -hmm. it's yeah. It's unlike anything I've seen before, yeah. at least. Yeah. It's very unique in that sense. And I, I think it's it's interesting. It, it's got some good things, and I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I think in terms of, of aesthetics, one thing that I found really interesting while watching this is a lot of times when we have a movie set in like a deep future, the the aesthetic might be very loud, but it's always kind of very shallow. You know, like there are maybe mm -hmm. like one yeah. or two outfits that literally everyone wears. All the yeah. homes are barren. <laughs> like, you know, nothing looks lived in or unique. But in this one, like, there are a lot, there, there's tons of different costuming, tons of different hairstyles. Yeah. You know, like yeah. All, all of the homes and interiors that we see are clearly like lived in and used spaces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think like, you know, but it's definitely a very like bizarre future aesthetic. But it does yeah. look real. It does look lived in, and it does feel like yeah, I could see people wearing that and like having those decorations and living in that manner. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, it looks like like a bit like Art Nouveau. Uh, that that. Oh, good point. Kind, yeah, it looks like fluid Art Nouveau in a in a sense of everything is really colorful and really specific in each room each hair yeah, yeah it's it's really uh, it, it's the it's the exact opposite of what we think about the common futurism about as you said uh padronize uh, padronized clothing and mm -hmm. and yeah yeah and there's the which is something i realized there are 
sort of technical futuristic uh, technology technological stuff but there's a very bucolic environment it's yeah. like there's a lot of nature there's yeah. the, the fields mm-hmm. the the sky the green the sea yeah it, it's not like oh it's all technicals these white clean rooms no it's yeah. like it's nature yeah mm. I did a little bit of research and, and uh, Boorman said that his two big influences were Tolkien and Arthurian legend. Yeah. Ooh, uh, I can see I can see the Tolkien. Yeah, and he <laughs> made this film because he was working on an adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, for, I was talking uh, about that with Frank earlier today. It's, and yeah. I, and and the production company went, "Yeah, no." That's <laughs> no. I don't think so. Did, and did, so did he, he go, did he goes off to Ireland to make this truly bizarre vision of the future now now i want to know if when like borman approached the studio about doing lord of the rings he had like like so, some 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 test footage and it was like sean connery in, in in like uh like a banana hammock just kind of like prancing on the beach and he was like okay that's gonna be frodo we're gonna start there <laughs> But in regards to that aesthetic, I think it really contributes to like characters being sort of unique and defining. Because yeah. like even characters that don't have a name, you sort of identify them in various scenes and moments. Especially in the end, at the very, oh, yeah. at the mass murder, like you recognize <laughs> characters from previous yeah. scenes yeah. what they were saying. So like this sort of this aesthetic concern has uh, a reflection on the storytelling and yeah. the identification of the characters and. Like especially friend when he changes throughout the movie. Yeah, mm, yeah, definitely. Also, uh, par- necessary parentheses. Uh, do you both, Bruno? I know does, but do you both agree with me that friend looks like a blonde Paul McCartney? <laughs> oh my god! So the entire time I, I saw him on screen, I was like, this guy looks so familiar, but it's because he looks like Paul McCartney. <laughs> yes, I, I I was having exactly the same kind of thought process when I was going. Firstly, that's the weirdest wig I've ever seen <laughs> somebody try and put this actor in. That's so. But oh my god, it's blo- it, It's Swedish Paul McCartney. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I guess, I guess, um, while we're still talking about the aesthetics of this film, another thing I found to be really interesting is kind of back to the like really like aggressive homoeroticism of the first act, especially. Mm-hmm. Like, it's interesting to me that the aesthetics can be, like, so, like, obviously homoerotic, you know, especially in the context of the, like, early 70s, yeah. and that the plot can be so not, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, this this is an intensely, uh, and we'll probably get into this later when we start talking about the end, but, like, it, especially the third act of the film, it is intensely heteronormative and intensely sexist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's such a clash with these kind of aesthetics, I mean, they do make Sean Connery's character out to essentially be a rapist. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 pretty, pretty directly. Yeah, that is a reaffirmed a couple of times. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But you're quite right that right at the beginning, even though you have the immortal line that the gu- the gun is good, but the penis it's is evil. evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have all of these, all of these uh, bear daddies just running around with their extremely phallic guns, waving around. Yeah. And like yeah, th- this we're pr- pretty pretty clear about what we're driving at here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and especially later at the end, like uh, when he's like signaling to them, and there's this sort of uh, companionship. At least that's what mm, I got. Like yeah. when he's signaling yeah. them from afar, or yeah. later when they're closer, and especially them calling out to him at the end. 
this mm-hmm. sort of uh, very close proximity. Yeah. Like, it is very much this sort of homoeroticism. Like, it, it, especially at the end, I think that became even clearer to me than at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, there is that. There is that really quick scene when we're kind of learning about um, how how uh, Zed's character learned how to read and become became aware. And we see that scene where like he's he's kind of like communicating with those three other exterminators about mm-hmm. his plot, and they're the ones who bury him in the wheat so he can sneak aboard yeah. the giant head of Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then I think once we run into the Eternals. I think what's interesting is how you shift from a very particular aesthetic into what's essentially a kind of hyper-stratified class society. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, because, uh, like, I've always been of the suspicion that that very English bucolic return to nature aesthetic has underneath it a pretty kind of fascistic and very conservative politics. Yeah. And, yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, boy, does this film prove... <laughs> Prove me right, because he he turns up, and the first question is: uh, So, do we either enslave this person, or do we just straight out murder him? <laughs> um, yeah. What's it going to be, guys? Right. And yeah. And after after they have a hard think about it, they finally decide that the correct answer is eugenics. Yeah. <laughs> like, but sort of uh, unwanted eugenics. Like, uh, uh, on one regard, I really find interesting how that. And it is very fascistic. That society, the society of the Eternals, functions the vortex. Yeah. It like it's just it's brutal. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, do you mind if I uh, go into it a bit? Just like, oh, sort please of describing do. it. Yeah, uh, go off. Because one of the things is that this they have become eternal. They don't die. Um, but the people are like in sort of classes. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of scientists. There are others who just organize things and deliver the the bread to people. Because they're, they're bakers, pretty much, taking the wheat uh, collected by the brutals and that they grow themselves. But it's... The, here's the thing. At, at a certain point of the movie, we get slightly ahead. There's a judgment, a trial. Mm-hmm. And there's been a defense from this sort of uh, sociologist, I think he is, like a, this researcher or whatever. And he's like, no, uh, he's being punished for having negative thoughts, yeah. sharing negative thoughts. <laughs> Which is something uh, a bit of scary uh, when you think about the society. Yeah. But mm-hmm. w- the way the the punishment is, is brutal because, like, the the vortex, which is the society of the Eternals, has like the normal Eternals, the the regular people who are sane and reasonable and all right. Then you have the apathetics, the ones who like they become bored with uh, immortality. So, yeah. They. They can't stand it, so they're just sitting there, yeah. motionless. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, one of the reasons for them making the Brutals, who were previously uh, were told that they were merely exterminated by the exterminators, uh, like said, they started growing wheat because they couldn't grow enough wheat to support the apathetics. So they put mm. the Brutals into growing it. And other than that, you have the Renegades. The Renegades, which are those that... Uh, for one reason or another, did not conform to the Eternals' heavy-handed rule. Uh, if collective rule, but, you know, it's mm-hmm. that's one of the things that maybe John was talking to us about before we started recording. And the Renegades are basically uh, the elderly. Uh, since the Eternals <laughs> don't die, they are made to be old. So the punishment for 
for example, the guy that had negative thoughts is aging like three years, I think. Yeah. So it's it's a very like this sort of biological control yeah. of the society upon its members, and especially as because there are various moments of this trial because like the Eternals have rings which have screens on them and which they see the various moments of the trials, the f- different defenses, and at the end, right before the vote. Uh, the accused, I don't remember his name, he's like, no, I, I have no point in lying anymore. I hate you all. I hate you all. <laughs> and, which is a brilliant moment. And Zed and the character were following is, yeah, that's better. Now you're being honest. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a very strict society. And like, you conform to the collective rule, to this sort of common sense, to the way we have done things for the longest time, or you're eg- or an exile without sanity, uh, being aged uh, forever. Like the oldest one, he's yeah. like stuck in bed, but he's alive, agonizing. Yeah, but he doesn't die. I think what's interesting about it is that it sets up the idea that immortality is actually pretty horrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's something that is maybe a very, especially if you think about this film as a film from the 1970s when you first have the kind of utopian idealism of like science is going to make the world better you look at like um uh concept art from the 70s and they all thought that we would be living on mars by yeah now, right yeah, we, yeah. The, the, be- the belief was that the world was about to be radically transformed um but there is no radical transformation in the world of the eternals right because they've completely because radical transformation revolutionary change uh, depends upon the uh, upon its contingency upon change upon fragility and so if you try and eliminate death what you have it's it's no surprise that like death the, to go beyond death especially in horror literature and horror film is to produce something genuinely monstrous yeah you think about yeah. you think about you know zombies you think about vampires you think about any of these other kind of occult creatures they're all creatures that have in some way gone beyond the limit of death which is uh, to that, which is another way of saying they've gone beyond the limit of what it actually means to be human. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and you've you've become something which isn't quite human anymore. Yeah, Frankenstein's monster himself, a pain to be alive. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I think also one one interesting point to to think about is when Zardos or Arthur Frank is talking about uh, his head is just flying around in the beginning of the movie <laughs> and and he talks about being ironic and that he it's for our soul entertainment and as well as for uh for the truth i don't know something like that and yeah it's it really i don't know what what do you guys think about like the the mood setting about this first scene because when when i saw it uh, i I was treating the movie like just a blatant humor, like uh, ironic humor. But mm-hmm. as it progressed, it was uh, it was getting weirder and weirder, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it went to. Uh, I, I was talking to Frank that uh, I needed to process the film, and w- here we are one week after, and he came to me and said, so did you process the movie? And I said, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only the only reasonable response to this film, is that like, this is, there's so much to chew on here. But yeah. I, 
I love that opening sequence, right? Like Borman, Borman inserted that sequence because test audiences were really fucking confused by this film. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, understandably <laughs> enough, right? So, so he was like, okay, like I'll have, I'll have a little like the director comes out, says a little piece about the film, and then goes away. But yeah. I really, I really love the final statement of um, Arthur Arthur Frayne as his floating head is kind of like explaining the plot to us, yeah. not the plot, but like the general nature of the world. It gives us a little pricey, and yeah. the. Um, I can't remember the exact wording, but but he says something to the effect of like, you know, like I I am Arthur Frayne, a man who's pretending to be a god, and I I was written by, you know, like I am a character in this film created by people who have total control over the film, and and you are watching this film, and who made you, you know, like yeah. are, they, yeah. are they capricious showmen like me, <laughs> and like yeah. that like like. You know, like this this movie is absurd, and there's a lot of yeah. like ludicrous imagery. But like that is that, that is a very direct line, and yeah. and so we get that, and then we get um just a few minutes later, right when um all of the uh, uh ex- exterminators are picking up the guns that Zardoz just kind of barfed out onto them, <laughs> uh, and like yeah. you know like they're 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 reveling and they're shooting their guns and they're hollering and they're, they're chanting Zardoz's praise. And Sean Connery picks up picks up his iconic gun from the film, looks directly at the camera, and shoots us in the face. Yeah, yeah. So, so we have this moment where where a stand-in for the the voice of the director, and for the for, for the film itself, kind of questions like, you know, like everything in this movie is created and at the will of something else. And what about you? And then a few minutes later, we're we're shot in the face like an Eternal would be later yeah. in the film. Yeah, like, and like this whole so intense. Oh, go yeah. on, go on, please. Uh, there's this whole theme of puppeteering in the movie. Yeah. Like, yeah. characters manipulating others, be it Zed, mm. like, masquerading as this pure exterminator <laughs> who's just, like, this ignorant brute, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, but actually oh, being point, yeah. physically and psychically superior to all of them, as yeah. we learn later in the movie, or Arthur Frank manipulating Zed beforehand, or, as we discover at the very end, uh, the tabernacle manipulating Arthur Frank to manipulating Zed to manipulating all the others. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, from that that opening speech is very Brechtian. Yes, and that's not something that I thought I was going to bring up when I was <laughs> talking about Zardoz. But there's a couple of things that I think are worth pointing out. Yeah. Right, this this idea of the audience's involvement in the text mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. Um and the text itself highlighting its own artificiality, which actually runs sort of very counter to what a lot of, um, especially genre film, wants to do. Lots of genre film actually wants to convince you that this is a plausible, realistic, mimetic image of a possible future. Yeah, yeah. But but this film goes, no, none of this is real. None of this is true. <laughs> um, but you are going to respond to it as if it were. Um and I think I I remember first watching it and feeling a bit frustrated because uh, it, it struck me as slightly incoherent, and I was like, I don't I don't get this. I don't, I'm not really sure what's going on. Yeah. But then I rewatched it this um, today, mm-hmm. and uh, it was that opening speech that really helped me kind of get my head around this film and go, actually, no, I have to stop treating this as a kind of desire for realism yeah. in inverted commas, and actually treat this as kind of a uh, a thought image that gets put in front of us. Uh, and demands a response. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the end. Of, the ending. The final sequence is the two 
so Sean Connery and the other female main character like staring at us. They yeah. stare at the audience like for the remainder of their lives in a sort of stop motion sequence. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's again this involvement at the very from the very beginning to the very end. Yeah, and I'm not really sure what answers we're supposed to come up with. Yes, because <laughs> as I think we've probably established, this is a pretty um, ambiguous and often contradictory text. Yes, but the I think the 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 class struggle element is actually pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. I think there are some interest if you take the idea of the um, uh, the ability to acquire knowledge as being indicative of coming to a kind of self-realization as a as a class conscious subject then that kind of helps explain a little bit the 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 revenge on on the eternals but i don't know i don't know if this is a film that fits neatly into a kind of easy marxist reading yeah yes especially because like it's not like you you can't get revenge on the eternals right they they got all the eternals got everything they wanted yeah. You know, like yeah, the, yeah. the the ones who wanted to die to escape immortality got that wish at the hands of the exterminators, and the ones who wanted to kind of like uh, re- rekindle some kind of society also got that wish. Yeah. So I, I think it's 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 like further further complicated from that point too. Yeah. Yeah, but then what about the kid of Zed after that? Oh yeah. I, 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 yeah, I was, I was dearly thinking about that because the the I, I forgot the name of the girl, but she actually tries to hold him, and he just goes away, and and Zed holds her hand, and they both die, and you, as you as you said about both classes of society reaching their wanted ending, but what about the the kid of of Zed? I, I was I was actually not thinking about that until you <laughs> said it because. <laughs> Yeah, it's mm. it, 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 it in in the movie it it just ends and you and you don't even think about the kid because you're thinking about the whole lot of other things <laughs> to think about sitting there in shock. Yeah, but yeah. but yeah, what about the kid I'm thinking about now? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I don't know. I, I think I think that's that's really interesting too because like you know like like like. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> they, they they both look so miserable. Yeah, but but we know why they look miserable though, and it's not not because of character direction. It's it's because <laughs> they had to reshoot a twelve hour scene where they sat still. <laughs> and and I think like like that's, that feels like a very old timey photograph where you had to be still for an excessive length of time, and you and so yeah. like nobody smiled because you couldn't sustain a smile long enough for it to capture. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so there's something there's something that accidentally kind of calls back to that about me like it's reaching into like this deep photographic past to recreate this scene and then like the 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 bit where is that consuela that he has a kid with consuela yeah yeah Yeah. it like when she when she kind of reaches for her son's arm and he's walking away like like I, i kind of had a mixed read of that because part of that felt a little bit like okay like that's a very parental like you know her her child is leaving the home for the first time you know he's yeah. about to go go off and you know venture out on his own life, which is you know a scary and very emotional time for a lot of parents. Yeah. So so like I kind of I read that along those lines. Like she was you know like like and especially like because like it had been like what three hundred years since the last child was born or something like that. Something so like there, that. There, yeah, there must be massive weight on her in that moment. You know because that's kind of like it's the whole of society and the machinery moving again. So so there must be a lot of yeah. intensity when kind of like the first new child in forever uh 
decides that they have to like move out of mom's basement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do you mind if I do what I do on every single episode <laughs> of the Horror Man Guard? Uh, which is wh- what am I going to do, Ash? I mean, I, I, I certainly don't. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, maybe is this, is this Mark Fisher? <laughs> you, 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 goddamn right, it's Mark Fisher. <laughs> uh, so, so in uh, in the unfinished introduction to Acid Communism, he talks about this <laughs> quote from Herbert Marcuse, um, which is the spectre of the world that would be free, um, and if you. Marcus is this kind of 60s radical figure writing for the new left and this film that comes out kind of in the wake of all of that you have these two possible uh, visions of a potential future one which is completely static and enclosed and and has no possibility of change or transformation mm-hmm. and you have this other one which is like seemingly has has kind of gone back into a sort of bef- pre pre-capitalist civilization they've just started uh, getting to the point of subsistence farming. Yeah. And at the end of this film, you have the end of those two static models, and you have the the child who leaves the frame and goes off into the world that could be free. You know, you've had the, the, the vision of the future that does not work, and now the question is, what is the next vision of the future going to be? There's yeah. a quote from one of the, the Eternals, which I, I... Like, I paused the film when I heard it, and I was like, what... Uh, because what they're explaining they're explaining their immortality and how they preserve themselves and they say something like that they're the guardians of the past for a future that has yet to arrive Mm -hmm. and i was like i'm suddenly having like hauntology flashbacks (laughs) in the 1970s um but the 70s is when there was this kind of cultural idea that the future could be something that was radically different so this film shows like two potential visions both of which end in death but death is not necessarily the problem right it's the reluctance to accept death which is the problem yeah. um and so then you have this new kind of subject that's born right at the end of the film and then just leaves uh so the question is you know what do they go out into yeah i will na- i will now stop talking about mark fisher <laughs> as i have reached i have reached my quota for the episode <laughs> yeah. yeah i think yeah, that Oh, go on. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, go on, Ash. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that um, this this whole conversation is really, really interesting, right? Because we we, we had an, we had another line where like like I, I just started like you know I've, I've got my like uh, uh, like like my newspaper clippings and my notes on the wall and the red string connecting everything. <laughs> but um, I think it was friend who, who who said this, but but it's when I think it's earlier on when Zed's just starting to ask him about their society. And then Zed is like, so wait, like, did, did, like, like, friend makes this offhand comment about how they have a spaceship lying around. And then Zed is like, wait, you went to outer space? And then friend is like, yeah, but it sucked. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, like, this is the future Elon Musk wants. Yeah. Right. This is, this is a completely anhedonic, entirely dictatorial, like, nightmare society where only, like, the, the Eternals only have one aesthetic. Right, they only have one set of like cultural items they can ever engage with. You know, like when they say that they're like the sum total of human memory or something like that, and they have to preserve everything. You know, like look, look at everything we see. Right, like they, they don't recite like any any like um, 
non-European, non-American traditions, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, it's all Greco-Roman sculptures and paintings and poetry and song and language. You know, there's a point where, like, uh, Zed's getting all the information downloaded into his brain while he has sex with every woman alive. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, like, like one of the things that is taught to him is Gaelic. You know, yeah. like it's it's this hyper hyper yeah. focus on like all of this like European and American imperial colonial information. Yeah. And like yeah. there's not there's not a single person of color in this entire film. Like there's no yeah. representation from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and like is, is the rest of the world in, in a similar situation? Is this just, has the UK just plunged into like just some bizarre dome of, of yeah. like <laughs> immortals and substance farmers and like the rest of the world is just kind of getting on okay and they've just abandoned it <laughs> I, I i don't know about you but i'm very, i was very excited to watch this documentary of what britain post-brexit is going to be like <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is this is the 1974 vision for like 2074 brexit <laughs> you would love to see it it's so good but yeah yeah like in terms of in terms of like lost futures and protected pasts it's interesting to me that this like you know science science fiction element is still like deeply into being a colonial and like like empire and even even like that they can travel anywhere presumably in the galaxy that they want because they reference going to other stars mm-hmm. like yeah. you know the, they're so boring because they've like locked themselves into nothing but this kind of like white supremacist it, like in, in, yeah. in empire view of culture that they yeah, can't get yeah. free and like my my first thought when they started talking about star trip uh, star uh, spaceships <laughs> was star trek you know because yeah. star star trek is also like you know the federation is an empire and it is a colonial force expanding through space yeah, yeah. and but it's also a more progressive manifestation of that it is more embracing of diverse cultures and like everybody on the starship enterprise is just having a real good time unless you're wearing a red shirt like, it is, it is <laughs> yeah, totally. n- nothing but sex with strange aliens and learning new things and having fun in space and, yeah. and that's because they've kind of embraced you know kind of like this this intersectionality in terms of how they formed their federation compared to the society we see with the eternals who are just like so staunchly locked into this incredibly isolationist uh yeah. revisionist stance yeah, I mean, let's be honest. This is this is Peter Thiel's dream scenario, <laughs> isn't it? Like Peter Thiel, a literal blood guzzling vampire ghoul, um, who thinks that he can survive the coming climate apocalypse that he's in many ways quite responsible for by simply buying up large tracts of land in New Zealand and and like having an armed compound which will, you know make make survivors fight for the death for the last bitcoin or whatever um but the point is that the eternals get everything that they actually want and that's exactly the problem Mm -hmm. yeah you know this is the reason their society fails is because they get exactly what they want and that's going to be the nightmare can you imagine having to be like elon musk but be that forever (laughs) (laughs) I mean, oh my, oh my God! That just sounds that sounds so awful. Rick and Morty yeah. jokes like, for a thousand years. That is your punishment. Oh, oh my God! Oh. Yeah, like you know, can you imagine being like the the uh, semi uh, sentient brain of Jeff Bezos floating oh, around, God. but never being able to stop existing because <laughs> that 
you know, uh, in the episode we did with Nicole Cliff a little while ago, she said that the big, the the only thing that rich people fear is death. <laughs> yeah. but actually, actually, this film makes the point that without death, what you end up with is is something that is completely anhedonic. There's no possibility of happiness. Friend talks about going into the stars and then just sighs and goes, "Yep, another dead end." Because what you're looking for is you're looking for a way out, mm-hmm. you're looking for mm-hmm. a, yeah. uh, the ability to get beyond yourself, yeah, uh, a kind of limit experience, and that's where horror resides. But that's also where death resides as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frank, Frank and Bruno, I'm interested to get uh, your your take on on like kind of. I know we I know we've had like there are a lot of loose ends to go back and tie up with what we just like started talking about. But like, what's your general <laughs> thought on on kind of everything we've been rambling? Um, can I go first? Yeah, yeah. I, I just have a couple ideas, especially yeah. with what you mentioned about horror. Uh, one of the things and a common theme in horror which is the theme of sleep and dreaming. The the mm. Eternals don't sleep anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They do mm. second level meditation, <laughs> yeah. which is sort of collective mind joining and reflection. Uh, it's never made entirely clear what it is, but this sort of abolishing of sleep is and of dreaming in that sense is sort of. No, not even death, not even the death of sleep can enter here. Yeah. And especially to that idea of them being guardians of the past and this sum of collective knowledge, even if imperialist in nature, it's for the society to come. This society would never come if the Eternals remained in their own state. Without Mm -hmm. Zed, they would remain the same forever. Yeah. And that future society for that future that these so supposedly uh, are guarding all that will never come because they're static in time and in space. Yeah. There is no change. Uh, We did some time ago, uh, have a chat with coffee with comrades about uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's the dispossessed. Yes. And the idea, Mm. and the idea of the society as of uh, a truly positive and anarchist society as that of, constant revolution constant mm-hmm. transformation yeah and this is the is extreme opposite yeah. this is absolute static yeah and, yeah. and i think uh, uh the the thing about that is uh, the the book has the the great quote about uh, brotherhood begins in shared pain and i i think mm-hmm. that it, uh, it's beyond the the idea that we are talking about uh, not fearing death anymore, or not having the element of death in in your in your brain when you're living as a human being, and and I think that uh, that's another uh, another element of horror and of life the uh, and of being a human being that is pain and suffering, and, and it, the the thing about Zardos and the the Eternals is that. Even that is, was abolished in a way that the only way of feeling like regret or pain is about continue to to being alive. Yeah, continued existence. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. so yeah, it it seems to me like a, a simulation of it's just a, a played round about thinking about what is the uh, a human society without any kind of uh kind of fear kind of re- regret of of uh, uh, yeah it's it's full of regret regret of being alive but yeah i mean the thing uh, uh and i re- i'm getting really confused here because i'm thinking about so much thing so much things but i think that uh the film doesn't it, it doesn't look like it it has a plot or a continuous story because it's it's 
uh, at all times is going in directions about it's rambling but it's a, a good rambling about what is life without uh, what would we look like without death what would we uh, act or feel or yeah and it's really uh, maddening in, in a sense of uh, it's maddening for the spectator who is watching this this totally awkward future and is maddening for the people who live there who cannot die anymore yeah and yeah. It's like especially with this variation of the plot like the third act is pretty much like the hero's journey he gets a prophecy yeah he, he learns what he needs to do now he gathers his allies he needs to fight this yeah. big bad which is the tabernacle which is something i i, I want to get into a bit because it's the whole thing um but it's this sort of the the plot is it's many things and yeah. at the end it becomes this sort of journey yeah but it's always been a journey but we haven't known i i yeah. it, it's strange <laughs> yeah. and what, something that i rec remembered which i forgot to say about this them being guardians of the past when they sort of like become supreme guardians of like this order and this stability when they like no we need to stop and need to kill zed before he destroys our society they become the when they go sort of maniacal <laughs> they start destroying these relics these statues that they are so adamant in protecting yeah like mm, yeah the ultimate defense of the society uh, implies in them destroying what they're supposedly protecting so it's almost like an admittance that no, it, this past doesn't matter. What, why, why we're here is not why we're here. Like we're here to remain, not to yeah. guard this something for someone else. No, yeah. we're here for us. We're here to protect ourselves. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Actually, what both of you have said because what it makes me think about is this idea of if you get rid of the concept of death, the Eternals don't necessarily need one another right there is no need for any kind of collective action or responsibility they're, yeah. they're all sick of they're all sick of the votes that everyone keeps <laughs> making them have they hate one another yeah uh, but it does but it doesn't matter because they're never going to die but in i i mean in fragility in it you find a kind of shared ground of solidarity yeah. as well right mm -hmm. yeah the fact that the fact that we are all vulnerable that we are all contingent that we're all fragile that we all uh, one day uh, will need to be taken care of and one day will die means that like we have to depend upon one another so if you get rid of death if you eliminate that and and have that as no longer being something that people have to confront or deal with on any kind of existential level yeah uh, you you get rid of you get rid of a shared ground of solidarity as well yeah what do you think ash hmm <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's so much to to chew on with this film and i think all of these points give me a lot of like ah oh, just really interesting things to to think about yeah yeah <laughs> this, this is like this, this is this is one of one of like the rare movies that just like stumps me because there's just so much going on in this movie yeah. like yeah. this uh, the, no, the texture the textual discourse so, here is so, so deep no, it's so normal and regular. It's just, it's there's not a lot going. Oh on yeah, yeah, this is <laughs> average movie, summer blockbuster. It's like a Marvel film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You want to maybe talk about talk about interesting and especially horny moments uh, when they're talking about how they, as a society, uh, one, they stop being horny um, because 
I, I don't remember the reason, but I, yeah. I don't remember it being very convincing either. Uh, yeah, and how no they longer could... horny on main ever. Sadly. Oh. <laughs> so, so really quickly, um, because I took notes on the exact moment where we learn about this. Um, uh, this is this is uh, I, I do believe it was Consuela talking to the group, and this is before she was won yeah. over to Zed's side. Yeah. And she she explains that sex has died out because erections have become impossible. And, yeah. and erections became impossible because men got bored because they lived forever. <laughs> and, like, that is, like, the most anhedonic, heteronormative take. And, like, yeah. my, my point of comparison is Hellraiser. You know, because the, yeah. the, the, the conceit of the first Hellraiser film before they build the extended universe and they're actually demons from hell um, is that, like, they're, they're trans-dimensional beings that have lived so long that the distinction between any kind of pain and pleasure is just totally lost on them. You know, like, that, that, like, because they can't die and because they live forever, like, like, why not? Why not do all of these, like, things that to us, because we're mortal and our lives are finite, are just, like, radically horrifying? Yeah. And, like... So, so you're saying that the two options for the immortal, uh, subject is either never horny ever or get get really into some extreme kink yeah uh, functionally yes <laughs> over, over an infinite amount of time with an infinite uh set of possible interactions an infinite uh series of decisions will be made and in that scene uh, when they're, they're talking about the because it's strange because supposedly consuela and may uh, which is the one that is actually supporting Zed and wants to start this new eugenics? She, they are supposedly. It's not. It's never clear, but they, especially some of the earlier interactions, that they are a couple. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there is something there, but it's there's no real justification or explanation other than that. Yeah, because Consuela at, at one point beforehand says that no, this is hurting me, May. Why are you doing yeah. this to me? It's not to us. It's to her personally. Yeah. So there's this sort of closeness between them, sort of relationship. But it's never, it's never anything beyond that. There's no actual a moment. They don't. They don't even kiss. Like it, it doesn't even get to that. Yeah. So it's talking about how it is so heteronormative. Like it's because something wasn't possible with the men that sex died for all of them, which makes <laughs> right? no sense. Yeah. yeah. There was my reaction to that. It was like, um. Well, I mean, like this is this is a very narrow appreciation of human sexuality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this and the following bizarre scene when they're talking like because we could never understand how um, uh, sort of stimulation led to the increase of blood flow to the penis. And there's this <laughs> image of a graph showing an erection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is the yeah. best bathroom stall kind of like graffiti drawing of a boner yeah. in movie history. <laughs> Yeah, and there's it's... there's that amazing moment where suddenly the graph changes, and then everybody just steps steps forward and looks down out of frame to the edge of Sean Connery's like costume <laughs> right. bulge. Like, huh. Okay, so we've made we've made Sean Connery's erection an extremely important plot point. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes, uh, we... fun 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 movie fact. Depending on which edition of this film uh, our our list our collective listeners have uh, watched. You might not have seen the uh, infamous boner scene because that really? that was cut yeah. from a lot of distributions of the movie because I guess wow. explicitly talking about how to make a boner and then looking at Sean Connery's <laughs> uh, uh, crotch is a bit too much for some uh, distributors. 
Because then, what's amazing is that they tried, like, okay, so let's see if you can make him Zed have a boner. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like the the most high school stuff ever because it's just like a research of like a gif of boobs. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. To be honest, honest, I do think that the the choice of material that they use. (laughs) does add some evidence to the fact that they've all given up on sex and have no idea <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. and have no idea what sexy or yeah. erotic might be yeah. anymore. Yeah. Because yeah. like first there's the gif of boobs, which is the most bizarre thing. I like, suppose this is woman showering some yeah. random moaning. And then there's this sort of weird mud wrestling, but it's <laughs> yeah. sort of ethereal and strange. Yeah. And, and it's like the way they measure the erection is like this sort of a wobbly line on the screen, which is sort of <laughs> it looks like a seismograph that measures yes! earthquakes. Yes, yeah. audience, please insert your jokes here. <laughs> and then Zed looks at Consuela, and then the thing goes like boing, boing, <laughs> and it's not actually works. And then, and then and, it's and his, and his, and his, and his and eyes like... pop out of his head, and he, like there's the wolf whistle, and oh, like, yeah. oh. <laughs> and everyone. <laughs> and everyone looks down and is sort of close, just cutting Sean Connery's crotch, and like everyone's supposedly looking down, <laughs> looking hugely impressed. Like, oh my god! <laughs> so, so the legends were true. <laughs> this scene is really interesting to me on on a uh, theoretical and kind of philosophical level. <laughs> oh jeez! And that's that. Okay, so 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 the 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 tension of this scene is up at this point. Consuela still wants to kill Sean Connery's character Zed, right? Yes. She yes. sees Zed as a threat, uh, possibly to her uh, uh, like internal relationships and to the society as a whole, and and she she wants to literally kill him, right? Mm-hmm. Zed is is an exterminator. He, his entire life is built around this like cargo cult religion where he goes around murdering uh, just, just kind of like the surplus population of brutals, right? Like he's, yeah. he's just like, he's, he's a Gestapo or a cop or something. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so, so there's, there, there's, there's this interesting power dynamic between the two and that he's, he's kind of like, he is like Consuela is is to Zed and the executioners as Zed and the executioners are to the brutals, and like like there, there's this this kind of like power dynamic flowing between the two of them, where where she is she is effectively Zed just one peg up on the social ladder. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like he his attraction like because like you know we have that other scene where he um you know tries to like sexually assault and rape one of the apathetics. Mm-hmm. But yeah. like you know, like he he like loses interest when he realizes that, that they're totally passive. Yeah, and, and like, just tosses her like a, a Barbie doll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the, the the fact that like the the one the one person he is attracted to and the one person he does wind up ultimately building like a I guess some kind of relationship with is the the only one that has power over him and the only one yeah. that has actively sought to kill him this entire time. Yeah, yeah. from the very beginning. Yeah, and. Especially in that scene, because if we think, like, revisiting the scene, knowing that Zed knows what he's doing there, that he is aware of their society and that what he wants to, not everything, but that he's aware that they're they're enemies and that he is better and superior in a way, like, physically and psychically, uh, as we discover later, he, he's not... It's like he's exerting a power dynamic there. Yeah. So in in that sense, that becomes very like um, sexist, 
because yeah. him has as a man as his power that the others aren't fully aware is completely mm. like uh, discrediting her by seeing her as an object of pleasure. Yeah, and no, I think to that's the some... point where they laugh at her. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, they yeah, all they all end they up all, mocking her all, for that. They all mock her, don't they? She, she's 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 the first one of them in three hundred years that has inspired any kind of libidinal desire, and and they shame her for it. Yeah. yeah. Basically, they're all a bunch of incel dorks. I literally <laughs> have that as one of my notes. Are the Eternals incels? Question <laughs> mark. Well, they are bold letters. Actual, yes, they're either they're either incels or they're like voluntary celibates. So they have no way of kind of coping with any kind of libidinal desire. And it even it to kind of underscore just how powerful libidinal desire truly is. Because of the raw uh, sexual charisma of Sean Connery, <laughs> uh, he manages to like bring the apathetics out of their sort of existential funk that they've gone into, where they don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But as soon as they get he, they get close to him, they're like, "Oh yeah, I remember having a body was pretty great." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because what happens is the first encounter he has with them. He basically sort of lifts them slightly from their apathy. There's like, oh wait, this is a thing. Yeah. This is strange. Yeah. And then later, like, he basically leads them all. They they kiss him and they take his strength and they all go yeah. into this weird orgy and they all become insta horny. Yeah. I think I think they even get his sweat. <laughs> yeah. If, I, if I'm not. Yeah. That's that's a really powerful image as well. Like, they are basically drinking his sweat and kissing each other and passing the sweat on like. As if the sweat was a, a a kind of image for the 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 working of a, a normal human body, like a, a a normal human being who actually sweats and dies and yeah, because yeah. they have no exertion, so they yeah. don't sweat. Yeah. Wow, didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah, but, and uh, I, I like to think that that scene was just taken from live footage of the aftercast party. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's exactly what would happen if you made out with Sean Connery. I'm just, I'm yeah. just putting it out there. Just lifted to a higher plane of awareness. <laughs> no, like, like I, re- I really, I really like that scene because there was something deeply queer about it, right? Because it's, it's yes. like, yeah. like, like, like the woman tastes Sean Connery's sweat and then passes on to a man who then passes it on, and it's like. You know, uh, metaphorically, they're all kind of they're they're you know swallowing Sean Connery's bodily fluids and sharing it between them, right? There's something like deeply, like simultaneously deeply queer and erotic about that, but also yeah. deeply religious. You know, yeah. if if you like, yeah. the, the other comparison that I thought was like, oh, that's the blood of Christ. You know, like they, oh, wow. you know, like like you know, drink of my blood. You know, Sean Connery is sharing him himself fluidly with these people, and through that, they're being saved. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no like I remember Bruno like being like, wow, this movie must have had caused a lot of shock, other than being softcore for the entire way. Yeah, yeah. Because like when they start exchanging, there's no differentiation or discrimination between men and women. They simply yeah. start exchanging man to man, woman to woman, and yeah. all that. It's is this uh, saying it as a, a full a queer moment in that sense? I, I saw it like that, and it was very positive. Yeah, and, and not to mention having... Sean Connery wears a wedding dress right after that. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm afraid yeah, we cannot bride. let that part go. <laughs> yeah, we cannot. We cannot. Yeah, he is he is the bride of this new society that kind of heralds this this reawakening of libidinal desire. 
which finds its expression not just in kind of sexual desire but in uh violence as well mm-hmm. yeah yeah like political revolution social change literal death yeah he's the one taken to like kill the prophet he in order to change society he needs to kill the one that sees the future mm-hmm. as yeah. a first step yeah. yeah and then of course that brings us on to the the truly bafflingly strange final scene in <laughs> the tabernacle Oh, yeah. I love that sequence so much because that is like 100% what I look for in weird little movies. Yeah. <laughs> I, I knew you would be into it. I it, it really, it really reminded it. me of uh, Trichet. Or, uh, what's your... Hang on. One, one brief moment. I, I have to go to the notes. Otherwise, I'm going to get this director's name wrong. And then that's going to like keep me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not come to class prepared. And this is all deeply embarrassing. But it, it really, really reminded me of uh, Peter Cherkasky's Outer Space, mm. and it's it's Cherkasky recut the movie Outer Space, wherein a woman is haunted by kind of like this phantasmal force, to have the woman be instead haunted by the outer edge of the frame, like the outer edge of not, like the film itself. He he recut the film and superimposed physically the film as the thing that's stalking her and haunting her throughout the movie. Oh my god. And That's it's really interesting. It is wow. brilliant and beautiful, and um, I it's only it's like eleven minutes long. It's up on Vimeo. I highly recommend everyone watch it. If you're sensitive to uh, rapidly flashing images, uh, just just know that the entire movie is rapidly flashing images. But yeah. it is it is just this phenomenally uh, artistically brilliant exercise. And when Sean Connery is kind of wandering through this kaleidoscope and kind of like frantically trying to escape something you know to find something something that isn't there something that's that's always just just off frame or cannot be put in frame that's that's kind of like the first thing i jump to yeah Yeah. because like what he's trying to destroy is something that can't even conceptually be explained (laughs) yeah because the tabernacle is supposedly this sort of the this collective it's it's the, the computer but it's sort of this keeper of all the knowledge yeah and in a sense it because it, it exists, it keeps all their memories, and if ever one of the immortals die, the tabernacle rebuilds them, so they can't even mm. commit suicide or actually die. The tabernacle uh, rebuilds them, and when they build the tabernacle, they erase their memories on how to destroy it. Yeah. So the tabernacle exists like sort of out of time and out of space, and yet it controls it all, and yeah. is this sort of guardian of, of, of the immortal society, of the vortex. And as we learn to find out, it exists in infinite light. Mm, uh, yes. So Sean Connery looks into this crystal to and figures it out. So he sort of penetrates into this crystal and is in this sort of eternal dark mirror room. Yeah. Searching for himself and something. Yeah. <laughs> as he sees the other characters and eventually himself in this sort of running around with a gun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he actually, in, in the end, he shoots himself through the mirror. Yeah, and then he shoots he sees, it refle- reflection. Yeah, and, 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 and he sees himself with the mask, and then without the mask, and then he is dying, but he, in the mirror, he's dying, but in reality, he's fine, and then he's falling down, and he's falling down in reality as well, and then it just goes away, and he's still alive. And yeah, yeah, he shoots the mirror, and the mirror bleeds. Yeah. 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 Which is an amazing little detail. 
Yeah. Yeah, this intense zoom of it as as uh, Sean Connery out of focus falls down bleeding. Yeah. So one one thing with this 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 sequence and kind of the film in general is this is like a a softcore porn pre-make of the Matrix trilogy from 1974. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Connery goes from being this normal guy who's very into his like normal job given the context of the world of course. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. he's he's kind of forcibly awakened and like like you know, when we, when, you, when we see him kind of like trying to relive the moment where he first learned how to read and he first encountered the truth of Zardoz, he's deeply traumatized by that. Like in yeah. the entire film, that's the only thing he's afraid of is is yeah. the, the memory yeah. of the time he read The Wizard of Oz and realized his entire life was a lie, right? And then and then we have this the, this the sequence where he's kind of in the crystal world. And he mm-hmm. has to kill himself. Weirdly reminded me of the scene in Matrix Revelations where Neo has to like willingly die to Agent Smith in order to save the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's his whole like romantic relationship with to, to like uh, Trinity, who is outside of this like Matrix universe. And it's like like the love that pulls him through and stuff like that. I don't know. Weird yeah. read there, but I did feel like there was some kind of like there were there were there was some there's some sinew connecting these two films across like four decades of cinematic history. Yeah, no, uh, especially the journey from him being like this sort of normal exterminator, like, because the way he puts it, he lost his innocence. Yeah, oh when, yeah. yeah. When he learns to read and discovers yeah. that uh, Zardos is actually the wizard, Zerd of Oz <laughs> without the off. <laughs> and it makes sense, but it is still hilarious. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah, And he, he cracks like he runs around like no destroying this library like in a full blown panic yeah like he he can't handle it like he lost his innocence like he found the truth yeah. and it is shattering yeah i wouldn't have thought that we would have ended up comparing zardos to to the matrix <laughs> well they are there but... are two uh, decidedly different takes on fetish attire so we have that yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely i think uh I think that's a very good point. That adds a lot of uh, credence <laughs> to your reading. Um, yeah, I like that the I like that the film tries to uses the Wizard of Oz though, which is an incredibly mm-hmm. strange choice, right? Because at least the Matrix uh, films grounded themselves in like Baudrillard, and, and, <laughs> but this goes no, no. The, you want to understand the current contemporary situation don't read any of that obscure continental philosophy you need to read frank albaum's the wizard of oz (laughs) (laughs) i really think that works in the context of the film though because like yeah you know obviously we have uh um arthur 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 frayn living inside zardoz's head echoing the wizard of oz being oz's giant floating head but then we also have like the, the Wizard of Oz has some like really deep seated racism baked into that book, and like and in this movie there's like no no appearance of race at all. Like mm-hmm. it is it yeah. is a deeply like white supremacist view of of kind of everything going on, and then kind of like on on, on top of that, like there's this added layer of like the the whole end of the movie is about the liberation of the the immortals and the exterminators but like what about the brutals you yeah know, like yeah they're they're entirely left out of the conclusion of this film yeah yeah 
and like and then like to kind of like further pin this pin this kind of point down like like Sean Connery is a class traitor. Like Sean Connery is like a, an ice agent or a cop or like Gestapo or, or something. Like it's his job to stop, like preemptively stop and shut down any kind of brutal uprising by murdering them and keeping mm, their population yeah. in check so that the Eternals can continue to live in prosperity. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It, it it just reminded me of something that the the entirety of, there's this. Uh, when they're talking about the foundation of the vortex, this sealing off from the brutals, and there's this scene of like the main immortal cast, like standing in the fields, looking through this glass at the brutals, just banging on the in, on this impenetrable glass, just like begging for help, and they stare at them like coldly and yeah. heartlessly. Yeah. And... I, again, again, uh, a genuinely chilling vi- vision of what will happen. Uh, should billionaires get their way in setting climate change policy um because this is exactly what's going to happen right because they they we've talked about this quite a lot on horror vanguard that (laughs) the rich the rich will leave you in a heartbeat if they think that no matter how useful you might make yourself you can be you can be exploited you can be uh, used you can be abused you can be eaten by a horde of zombies if that is going to prolong their existence by just five more seconds yeah um and so one of the reasons that i asked just before we started recording about whether whether everyone thought that this was kind of a pro or anti-collectivist film is that i think it's a really good at showing the potential of a certain class formation to produce uh, subjects that are willing to act entirely in their own interests like if yeah. you talk to a lot of people they go oh i don't really think that class warfare is a thing but i'm like well <laughs> rich rich people absolutely do and yeah. they're winning and they're yeah. winning <laughs> yeah yeah and if you th- and if you think the eternals are this kind of upper class that are kind of use the the executioners as their sort of cop force then it just shows, it kind of puts forward i think actually quite a biting critique of a certain kind of collective class action yeah it's just like uh, it's really similar to 1984 by orwell because <laughs> uh, there's this scene where where winston smith he just goes to the like the, the species of ghetto that mm. th- there is like a a really poor society that is left behind <laughs> And actually, they they bomb these areas every day for like the 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 so so it's really like you were saying like even if the the society uh, the perfect uh, high society the perfect uh, not perfect society uh, high society exists uh, and, and even if it uh, even if it is uh, a, a completely destroyed and 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 in crisis society they still uh, do all the their job to keep the the poor at, at at bay like to to kill them or to regulate the amount of, of poor people that there are so they can't even try to think about revolution try to think about anything that is t- uh, near to taking the power yeah, and mm, yeah. So, something I, I, I've, I've remembered and forgotten and remembered and forgotten and I've remembered. <laughs> no one, uh, something that's become clear is that 
the majority of the immortals and of the Eternals had no idea what was going on outside the Vortex. Yeah. Like, they simply... Arthur Frayne was the only one who actually wanted to do something with it. Because, like, oh, nobody wanted to take it, to look at them, so uh, Arthur simply went and did his thing. Yeah. So, like, they say, oh, we need to investigate it. But they, they don't. They don't care. Yeah. They never cared. Yeah. That's why, like one person was interested in like sort of manipulating them and making them their slaves and whatever and manipulating them as being a false god yeah so it's this absolute uh, separation like oh no you you can't get to us we can't we don't want to even see you we don't give a shit anymore yeah like we exist outside of you and then they turn on each other that's the thing about the renegades the renegades are part of that same society but they've been because of at times more or less a non-confirmation, they've been slowly uh, exiling many of their own. So on on the one hand, if you really think about it, the eternal society is progressively diminishing as more and more become renegades. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and they, I love the fact that they all look like they've just stepped out of a David Lynch film. <laughs> and they're sort of wandering around and they're like, they're old jazz instruments. And it's like, yeah. it's they're like, all in suits. <laughs> As opposed to this kind of like rural peasant attire that tr- they try and make everybody wear. Yeah. Which is all of this. Uh, so I, I think that that's a really good point that eventually this society's desperation to enforce conformity is just going to result in more and more people being made into renegades, made into these yeah. uh, figures that don't quite fit anymore. It'll implode. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it'll simply collapse on itself. Uh, class contradictions, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do think that's one of the ultimate lessons there, is that, like, you know, like, you, you can cozy up to power as much as you want, but, like, power is infinitely constricting. You know, like, it yeah. will... It will like if, if you might be on the inside today, but that's going to be the periphery tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah, there's this establishing shot, and like some of the oldest renegades were like the first scientists. Yeah, yeah. they were yeah. the ones responsible for establishing uh, eternity. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're the ones who are, were the first to start paying the price for eternity. Yeah. It's, yes. it's something. Much, much like Sean Connery's attire, like this is this is an infinitely constricting uh, uh, circle of people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much like Sean Connery in this film, this is uh, confusing, but, <laughs> but, but but still slightly horny. It made me yeah. feel things. <laughs> Horror. <laughs> it did things to our bodies it did <laughs> yes. it did it de- it definitely <laughs> did things to our bodies which uh i like that that's sort of become the unofficial horror vanguard slogan now <laughs> horror horror wants to do things to your body and sometimes you won't like those things but sometimes the thing doing those things to your body will be sean connery in an orange <laughs> in an orange mankini <laughs> to quote from a dialogue between friend and arthur from the movie which i just kind of find funny we've all been used and reused and abused and amused <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they're, they're really sh- describing oh go on go on i was just saying i think that's a great way of describing the feeling of watching this film <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah it's just yeah, tossing yeah. you around back and forth yeah yeah, I was I was just gonna really quickly add that like uh, Arthur and friends relationship, much like uh, Consuela and her counterpart, like there's also like a 
like a, a subtle erotic tension between the two, something that like goes beyond just the homosocial. Yeah. 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 Cause like friend knew what Arthur was planning for Zed. Mm-hmm. So like, he's also in on it. Yeah. On destroying society. Yeah. Yeah. And like, <laughs> like he's, he's in on it, but he doesn't have a role. You know, like, yeah, like he wasn't an agent there. in it, which means he had to just be really, really close to him to confide that mm-hmm. secretly. And then in the end, when, like, uh, I think I think Friend puts us forward where he's like, oh, you kill me and I'll kill you. And then Arthur is like, yeah. oh, that'll be so ironic. And they're like, they're, they're, they're laughing and they're having this great time as they're about to share, like, this, this, this kind of thing that they've craved for 300 years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Any any final thoughts that we want to uh, throw in there as we start trying to tie together this this strange bizarre? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't have any. any I have lots of thing, lots of things left to say, but I don't. I can't put it really in words. So <laughs> yeah, it, it it is definitely. It's a, it, it's strange. It's something worth watching and rewatching. Yeah, uh, I think, and and I like it. Like even through the ambiguity and sort of bad and horrendous things, and some of the strange and the bizarre, and at, at times the unfathomable. Yeah, it's it it is hilarious and it is horrifying, and just the reflections on thinking about like death. And the lack of death and the lack of horror in that sense. Yeah. Like mm. if, if the, as you were saying, John, if there is no no death, which is one of the main things about horror, there there's there's no horror uh, supposedly, but there's the absolute horror of eternity. Yeah. Which is yeah. like a, a sort of permanent pain that they have. It's oh, it's great. It's great. And here's the thing: I don't think it's nearly as bad as its reputation suggests. Yeah, um, yeah. I agree. oh, not at all. It, yeah, it has this. Like, it has this reputation of being like one of the worst films ever made and being like infamously <laughs> terrible. Yeah. And it is, in places, extremely silly. Uh, <laughs> and there's there's a lot about it which, uh, watched today, comes off. Uh, well, it doesn't come off. It is deeply uh, misogynistic, heteronormative, yeah. Yeah. dependent upon a very patriarchal masculinist vision of sexual uh, desire um but i also think it's full of these really interesting and weird ideas <laughs> yeah um, which means that i'm i'm so, i'm so glad that i got to watch it again yeah <laughs> so am i and, and let's be honest it's fun to see all the immortals get killed at the end yeah <laughs> I, I love that sequence so much because, like, in any other movie, that, that, that like, massacre, that mass kill-off would be, like, we'd be watching it from a distance, and there would be, like, slow-mo shots of people falling, and then, like, some, like, like a pop song that's keyed down and sung really <laughs> <Yeah>. slow. It'd be <laughs> so melodramatic, but in this one, it's, they're all just like, oh, kill me, kill me next! <laughs> they're, they're, like, hugging, yeah. hugging each other, but not out of sorrow, out of, like, like a kind of, like, compassion. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like, and the exterminators are like they don't give a shit. They just kill. Yeah, yeah, they're just they're just doing what ex- they're just exterminating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ultimately turns on themselves. Yeah, part part of me wonders if they were kind of like 
uh, somehow in communication with Zed because Zed does become like godlike by the end. You know, he can reverse yeah. time with his psychic power. Like we see him <laughs> rebuilding the uh, like Greco-Roman busts that the yeah. uh, mm-hmm. people destroyed in the riots. And like, and he does that by kind of reversing the time that happens to them. So, so I think we're, it's hinted that his power is like pretty infinite towards the end of this, or yeah. at least like startling. And like, yeah. we, we, we yeah. did get that scene earlier where the three other brutals, like his three comrades are like, like they know where he is, like they know where he was going to go. And he kind of like, like they're signaling each other through that barrier. Yeah. And so part of, part of me wonders if like, you know, cause it is interesting that they, the Brutals do arrive at that specific moment, so I wonder if they were, like, in on, on it somehow, or in on part of it? Hmm. Yeah, but... Yeah, it, maybe, maybe. But it's, but it's strange to think, because, like, at the end, he isolates himself. Like, they're all looking for him. Zed! Mm-hmm. Zed! <laughs> yeah. And he's just ran off with Consuela. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I, I, I just want to say, I, I still see no sense in, like, why does he end up with her? It's like, there was this duel, but and there was the tension, but still, it's like, eh, I, I'm not convinced. <laughs> yeah, I'll agree I think with that's that. the one thing that's like, uh, yeah, and just I, I, I don't think that could ever work. Like, I, I can get like her not killing him, that I can get, but not them ending up together. That doesn't make yeah. sense to me. Yeah, I think, I think it definitely like, in terms of like the narrative and the structure of the film, it's definitely setting up Zed and May to have a relationship. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. From the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's the one that doesn't want to kill him. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. we have that whole moment where they're like naked and in each other's arms and they're kissing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like that just kind of like she, she just gets like slotted out for Consuela right there at the end. And that feels like if yeah, it feels like we needed another couple scenes of like mm-hmm. like the scene yeah, but- where, where Consuela is like, I'm going to torment him now. And then like uh, Zed <laughs> catches her hand. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like I felt like if we, if we if we needed a few more of those like intimate tension moments between the two to kind of like set up the payoff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I get I get what you're all saying, and I do agree. But I think what you're forgetting is that by that point, Zed Sean Connery has such a powerful aura <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> that that how could anybody resist, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, true. But, I, I no. keep forgetting that he can turn back time with his brain. So yeah. <laughs> He literally yeah. does have to tell people to stay within my aura, otherwise I <laughs> might die. That, that, I think that's my favorite line from the movie to see Sean Connery and like all of his like hyper masculine seriousness that he can never shake. Just say, "Stay within my aura." <laughs> it, it, it's now. I now what I want is I want uh, Sean Connery's voice to do like um, a reading of a Marianne Williamson book <laughs> talking about talking about orbs. Talking about orbs and like psychic energy, <laughs> but it's also the one scene where he's not in the mankini because oh. he's with his sort of shoulder padded robe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we do. We do have kind of like the 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 taming the taming of the rapist trope there. Yeah. You know, he he goes from that barely clad wild man with all these like uncaged masculine desires into like this kind of like uh, like he he's wearing like by the end of the movie he's wearing that like green frock kind of thing. And, and he shows up and he's only like, at that scene. Yeah, and, he, and he's like a, a committed, or at least like ba- based on that image, you know, like we, we get the intimation that he never leaves the home or like, you know, at least like his primary focus is is to be like a homemaker along with his partner and raising the child. So like, I, I think like there's definitely like that trope kind of bears true by the end. Yeah, like responsible husband. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he he, go, he goes from like executioner maniac man to like dad. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, he has that like, sort of crisis where he's going to shoot the prof, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that's not me anymore." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other exterminator shooter. Yeah, maybe that's what what makes sense to him and Consuela ending up together because they have become like entities in the end. Yeah, they're no longer themselves. In a way. Yeah. Hmm. Strange. Oh, I love this movie. I love movies like this because there, there is just like like this movie is not handing you anything very easily, and it's giving you yeah. things that are yeah. at times simultaneously uh, uh, contrary. Yeah, and, yeah. and like th- this is this is the kind of movie where it's like you're either going to watch me and you're going to you're going to hate this film because you can't pierce it, or yeah. like this this movie like I saw this movie for the first time like a decade and a half ago. And like <laughs> fifteen years later, here I am still talking about this film. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, like, and I, yeah, and I think even the the style, the the type of conversation that we're having here is like contaminated with this kind of not grasping anything and talking <laughs> about things that we we suddenly begin to think about the things that we we ourselves are talking and yeah. being confused. <laughs> yeah, you finish watching Zardos, but Zardos never finishes watching you. <laughs> yeah, it always so well put, more, yes. Right? It always reveals there is always more to this uh, epic, <laughs> absolute mind trip of a film. Um, and it is so much more than just the memes. Please, it, it, if you haven't, if all you've seen of this uh, are those gifts of Sean Connery in his fetching mankini, it's worth it we promise yeah (laughs) yeah highly highly worth it this movie is intense oh yeah (laughs) like for one example like what uh, we don't know exactly what those crystal mirror triangles are and why are there naked people lying uh, inside of them (laughs) with water flowing through them (laughs) and also like why are people wrapped up in like in like little like ziploc bags yeah, that's never explained either. Because because they're yeah. inside Zardoz, they're inside the floating stone head, and there's tons yeah. of them in there. Like, why why are they with Arthur Frayne? What do they do inside yeah. of Zardoz? Is that a punishment? Like, or does Arthur or did Arthur Frayne had other plans? Did or are those else? like the failed what? eugenic mutants before we get Zed? Maybe. Mm. Oh man, this movie. Yeah, <laughs> this movie. Yeah, it's a solemn horror vanguard and left page promise that this movie is worth watching yeah yes yeah. <laughs> easily um oh that was that that was a good conversation yeah oh an amazing one and one of oh, the most funniest conversations i've ever had <laughs> <laughs> yeah you two you two are great that was awesome shall we shall we do a quick wrap up where we can plug uh both the shows yeah let's plug and... everything <laughs> yes <laughs> well Thank you so, so much for uh, joining us, for listening in on this absolutely uh, bizarre, mind-expanding journey into the essential sexiness of Sean Connery's <laughs> chest hair, uh, among some other things. Uh, thank you so much to our comrades from the left page for joining us. Uh, where can people find the show and support the incredible work that both of you are doing? Uh, thank you so much both for having us and yeah, having this conversation. A, it's been a pleasure. It's been really fun. Yeah, it's, uh, as I spoke to John and Ash before, like thanks to John, he led me towards the <laughs> left Twitter and podcasts. So this is full circle, and it's amazing. And I'm still fanboying over it all. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find our show at on Twitter at, at Left Page Pod. 
I'm usually plugging stuff there, uh, plugging on various podcasts and a couple of things I'll say on Twitter myself. Um, I am at KGB Frank as well, and Bruno is at uh, uh, San Giorgio Bruno. It's S A N G I O R G I O Bruno. <laughs> and you yeah, I can... need to change that for the love of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can find and support us on Patreon uh, on uh, patreon.com forward slash left page. I checked this time because I, I was never sure if it was the left page or left page part on Patreon, but it's just left page. Yeah, so there. Um, we have a couple of things we've been uh, we've been slightly uh, late but we've been putting out some content related to poetry yeah. uh, which is quite fun and different yeah uh, and definitely out of my field <laughs> but Bruno is helpful so that's great <laughs> and fun uh, but if you have not if you have not listened to the left page I cannot recommend it highly enough if you are interested in ideas in history in literature uh It's, it's just such a good show, and it's so nice to see uh, more cultural criticism uh, on the left emerging into the kind of digital world. Um, so, as always, you can find Horror Vanguard on Twitter at Horror Vanguard, and please do support the show at patreon.com slash Horror Vanguard. Ash and I are both on Twitter as well, uh, terminally online, uh, never stop posting. <laughs> that's, that's the only way that we get through the day. <laughs> <laughs> we can never escape. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, we're eternals. <laughs> oh my god! We're, we're imprisoned in the anhedonic world of posting on Twitter. <laughs> oh god. Until next time. Goodbye. Yeah. Until next time, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you.
Oh, wow. That is some graphic design is my passion sort of poster design. That is a whole lot of big hairy men in thigh-high boots. I'm I I have to admit that I am just a little a little disappointed that the original casting didn't um continue because I I deeply deeply want to see Burt Reynolds in a mankini with bandoliers and thigh-high boots. I I want to see 1970s Burt Reynolds running around wearing a giant orange nappy. <laughs> I have been recording for the last few minutes. Damn. All right, well, I am now recording. There we go. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we're well established now. We we know we know the direction of this episode, and it's just horny on main for Sean Connery and Zardoz. Um, this is definitely going as a final take. <laughs> horny on main for Zardoz and Sean Connery. Only for main... With for Sean Connery on Zardos. Yep. Yeah. That's I I think that's your episode <laughs> title right there. I've got to be honest. <laughs> right, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Oh, it, it can get Writes better. Itself. <laughs> can it though? <laughs> Who knows? We'll see. God, this is like a crossover episode. Yeah, yeah. The leftist podcast expanded universe. <laughs> Whoa. This is 